Good evening. It's, good to, it's great to see so many of you here tonight. My name is Father Thomas Joseph White. I'm the director of the Thomistic Institute at the Dominican House of Studies. And the Thomistic Institute is co-sponsoring a series with uh, the, the Catholic Information Center that's actually the first three of a series of eight talks this year in downtown D.C. and in Arlington on the nature of the human person and human virtue. And so we're so grateful to kick off this evening, the, the, to kick off the series this evening, to have Father Stephen Fields from uh, Georgetown University join us. Father Fields is a priest I am sure known to many of you, loved and cherished by many, and if you don't know him, I think you'll be very glad to make his association this evening. He was uh, ordained in the year 1986 in the Society of Jesus and assigned to teach at Georgetown University in 1993. So he's had a prestigious and long tenure in that venerable institution where he is an associate professor in the Faculty of Theology. He is beloved to many on campus and known especially for his teaching the famous class, The Problem of God, Father Fields may think that it's a problem to think about God, but doesn't think God is problematic, <laughs> and has uh, written a great deal of theology, including a book called Being a Symbol, which is about the metaphysics of Karl Rahner, which he published from Georgetown in 2000. And most recently, his big book from this summer, Analogies of Transcendence, which is a book about nature and grace, published from Catholic University of America Press. Some of you know him because he regularly says the Latin Mass at St. Thomas the Apostle Parish in Washington, D.C., where he also helps minister to many and gives spiritual direction and counsel to many with wisdom and charity. So please help me welcome Father Fields. The subject of his talk this evening is Our Common Identity, What It Means to Be Human in an Age of Confusion. Uh, thank you, Father Thomas Joseph, and a good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I will uh, speak for about a half hour, and then I will take uh, any questions or comments that you would like to uh, raise. I, I'll try to speak very slowly, because I, much of the material that I've put together uh, for this evening does, in fact, emerge from this this problematically entitled course that I've taught for 23 years at Georgetown called The Problem of God, which we drag all of our freshmen through. Uh, so I will, uh, since I can't uh, look at you and, you know, say, uh, did you understand that, as I do with my freshmen in my Socratic style, I will try to sp speak slowly. Uh, I hope I won't speak too slowly, but you've all come from various activities, uh, uh, you know, and so you're not primed for perhaps for this kind of uh, language that I'm going to use. So uh, if I speak too fast, indicate that I should slow down. If you find me uh, dragging and full of lassitude and boring you, tell me to speak up, and uh, nobody ever criticized a talk for being too short. We speak about human beings having a common identity. And we claim that right-thinking reason, which is often called the natural law, can disclose this to us. The church is probably 
the last great institution in the world to support, defend, develop, and perpetuate the law of nature. And in so doing, the church has integrated it into the revelation that God has graciously given us in Christ. I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on how the church has done this. But first, a word about the enemy of the church's project. I mean the enemy of the claim that there is a law of nature, the enemy of the claim that we human beings do, in fact, have a common identity. This enemy has been identified by Pope Benedict XVI as the dictatorship of relativism that has taken hold of much of the contemporary Western spirit, confusing and even corroding it. So what is relativism? One prominent form of it is fairly crude. It comes mainly from anthropologists who study the world's diverse cultures. It claims that it is wrong for anyone to pass judgment on another ethnic or religious group because doing so implies imposing on them our own culturally conditioned values. The key premise here is that there is no common human identity or law of nature that right thinking reason can discover and thus that the plurality of the world's cultures are not rankable in any hierarchy of good or better. Accordingly, under this form of relativism, justifying, for instance, the Nuremberg War Trials after World War II would seem virtually impossible. How could we dare to accuse someone of a crime against humanity if there is no common humanity to violate? Now, a more sophisticated form of relativism comes from some professional philosophers who claim that there is no single, uniquely justifiable morality such as the natural law would claim itself to be. Now, importantly, this relativism does not claim that all moralities are good or true. Some moralities, they would say, are downright unreasonable. But they would claim that reason cannot find one system that judges all others. Thus, a crime against humanity could make some sense to some reasonable people, but other reasonable people could find it seriously flawed. The only basis then, finally, that somebody could be punished for a crime would be the sheer force of the will of the victors in a war imposing their version of what is reasonable on the losers. 
Now, this tepid justification of a crime against humanity will probably leave many of us feeling dissatisfied and ill at ease. In a brief half hour, I cannot conclusively refute these versions of relativism, but I can give an indication of Catholic Christianity's perspective on them, and so stimulate our thinking while giving us Catholics a bit more ammunition to defend ourselves in the often antagonistic environment outside the doors of our safe zone here in the CIC. And so, to proceed. God himself has told us what our common identity is based on. We are made in his image and likeness. The book of Genesis, where these words occur, doesn't further specify how this is the case, but the early church fathers did. They found God's image and likeness in our rational soul, and hence in the mind and its powers of intelligence. It is the very stamp of divinity in us. Moreover, our mind is like a mirror held up to divinity. When we look into it, we see, if you will, the face of God shining in it. So if we want to know, according to the early church fathers, what God is like and how we are like God, all we need do is look within ourselves to understand how our mind works and when we rightly use it, we remotely but really act like God, imitating God, even becoming co-creators along with God of the world that he has entrusted into our care. Moreover, to find a definition of the powers of our intellect, the Church has traditionally looked to the beginnings of thought in the West, to that auspicious time when mind itself was discovered. This happened with Socrates as deepened by his student Plato and by Plato's student Aristotle. How remarkable it is that all of this enduring human wisdom should be owing to the same small city-state of Athens in the third century before Christ, about 2,350 years ago. Pope Benedict, for his part, emphasizes the importance of the Greek discovery of mind on Christianity in his famous Regensburg Address of 2006. Athens, he tells us, reminds us that reason means logos. Logos. This is a Greek word 
that means that the mind is constituted by an innate, intrinsic power of communicating truth. This power belongs first to God and second to us because God shares it with us. Recall, for instance, what the beginnings of the Gospel of St. John say. In the beginning was the Logos. The Logos was God, and the Logos became flesh. In other words, God's own very mind shines in the humanity of Christ Jesus, radiating God's truth throughout all the time and space of history. So then, let us ask the next question. What are the basic contours of our common human identity that make us logos, that make us the image and likeness of God? What, in other words, are the fundamental powers of mind articulated so long ago that have so long since guided us? First, the human mind is necessarily engaged in a constant, enriching dialogue with an objective world that it discovers and confronts outside of itself. It needs to leave the confines of its own boundaries to begin the process of knowing, of assembling knowledge, of coming to articulate what is true. Therefore, the human mind is not solipsistic, it is not introverted, it is not isolated within itself, it does not create from within itself what is true, good, and beautiful. This important point delivers us an initial, robust thrust to relativism because it anchors what we individual subjects know within the objective order of the world that is to be known. Aristotle will thus define truth as the conformity of our minds to what our minds know of the world. This is called the correspondence theory of truth. I repeat it. Truth is the conformity of our minds to what our minds know of the objective world. Second, this objective world that we confront is not our enemy. It is not hostile. It is, in fact, ready and eager to befriend us. It is a rich world of information on the very verge of giving it all over to us to know. But it cannot speak for itself. It requires us to penetrate into it 
to open the treasures it contains and to process these treasures into language that can be spoken and communicated to other minds. Alexander Pope, the 18th century Catholic English poet, puts it so well in this charming heroic couplet. Nature and nature's laws lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and all was light. Therefore, the human mind peers and delves into a world that wishes to communicate itself, so that what it communicates to us, we may, in turn, communicate to others. In a word, our minds and the world stand as happily wedded partners committed to a perennially sustained conversation. Third, only the human mind can know that it knows the truth. I repeat that. Only the human mind can know that it knows the truth. Yes, of course, squirrels can know where their nuts are buried and can find them in the snowy mounds of January. But squirrels have not yet, at least, developed, for instance, Newtonian physics, which expresses the laws of nature in mathematical equations that then give us predictability over the world, allowing us to produce innovations like electricity and nuclear power, innovations of creative genius that enhance the good of our species. In short, what then is the hallmark of the logos that makes up our common human our common identity as human beings. It is this. We know and proclaim the truth, which means that we know what is, which means that we know the causes of effects, which means that we know the reasons for things, which means that at the very heart and core of the logos of our common human identity is the dynamic power to answer accurately the perpetual, repeated, continuous, and unceasing question that our minds spontaneously pose from the day when we could think And that question is, why? Nyose se auton. Socrates commands us, know thyself. Know that as a human being, you can find the truth, do find the truth, and can live 
according to the truth. Well, so far so good. But a relativist critics might reply, yes, we agree that in matters of empirical science the human mind can find the truth. The scientific method is, after all, self-correcting. If a hypothesis does not work, or if some new fact shows it to be wrong, we throw it out, saving as true only those that actually do work. But how can you, Fields, claim that the existence of God and the principles of morality are true? God is not whatever God is, is not an empirical object that can be felt, tasted, touched. Neither are the principles of morality. They seem to fall, then, expressly outside of the scientific method, and so we return to our claim, self-justified, namely that truth must be relative to each and every individual, at least in terms of the existence of God and morality. First, let me offer a response to our critics concerning the existence of God. Many advocates of the theory of the evolution of the species, initially put forth in the 19th century by Charles Darwin, have supported the relativist position that I just voiced. They claim that the human mind has evolved from the spontaneous processes of natural selection. These processes, they say, have had a single guiding purpose, to enable human beings to survive and reproduce in a physical environment sometimes congenial, oftentimes hostile. As a result, they further claim, our powers of reason are not designed to discover truth in any broadly comprehensive sense, but only to find those facts that make survival and reproduction possible in the midst of many vicissitudes, like predators, disease, weather, the availability of food, the amount of oxygen, and so forth. However, recent discoveries in physics have shown this claim to be naive even while they lend support to God's existence. They show that our terrifically complex universe is intrinsically structured so as to be friendly to rational inquiry, even as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle have averred. These discoveries in physics show that the intelligibility of the world 
is no mere accident emerging from random events. On the contrary, they show that our human mind's symbiosis with the world is replete with order and purpose. One such discovery, for instance, concerns the elementary particle called the boson. In 1960, the British Nobel laureate Peter Higgs made deductions based on previously known principles of physics, by which he predicted that this particle should exist. But he failed actually to observe it. It was, however, observed just four years ago as Higgs had foretold. And so Higgs's deductions and prediction were empirically verified. Now, the point here is that contemporary physics vindicates the principle of intelligibility. This principle means that the universe is comprehensible to human minds in a broadly comprehensive sense, intelligible far in excess of what is needed for us merely to live and breed. It means, furthermore, that truth links us, our minds, and the universe together in a fundamental synergy. Thomas Nagel, also a physicist, in his book of 2012, entitled Mind and Cosmos, agrees with this position, yet he wishes nonetheless to hold firmly to atheism. In so doing, in my opinion, ironically, he fails consistently to follow the principle of intelligibility for which he so capably argues in his book. Precisely because truth links us and the universe together, the next vital question demands to be answered. What is the cause of this intelligibility? Surely, the only sufficient answer can be nothing less than an infinitely intelligible first cause, an infinite mind that orders truth, a mind infinitely intelligent and first causative which we call God. To posit, as Nagel does, that there is ultimately no cause to the truth that we observe of the universe can only be called obscurantist. In other words, his position represents a restriction of knowledge because it denies that there is intelligibility to intelligibility itself. Let us therefore take a certain justified 
delight in the irony that relativism should fall victim to contemporary science, which in turn supports St. Thomas Aquinas's 13th century proofs for God, called the Five Ways, all of which are based precisely on this very principle of intelligibility. Now finally, a brief word in defense of a universally true system of morality. Let us ponder this question. If, as we have shown up to this point, the universe is congenially intelligible to human beings, and if God is the infinitely intelligent cause of this, is it not utterly unreasonable to assume that God has not made the universe morally intelligible? Put another way, is it not compellingly likely that God has implanted moral principles in the universe for us to discover even as he has implanted the laws of the universe that physics can discover? After all, aren't moral principles of far greater importance to us than the boson particle which we can find? And aren't moral principles of far greater importance to us because living or not living, according to them, either makes or breaks the integrity of human persons who assert their control over the universe? So I submit that the real question is not whether a universal morality of the natural law exists. It's highly probable that it should and does. The real question is, Why don't people acknowledge its truth and live by it? In a trenchant sermon, John Henry Newman, the renowned 19th century English convert, gives us some insight. Truth, he reminds us, is hidden when it is not actively sought after. The quest for what is supremely good requires not just an open mind, but a whole set of virtues, like love of it, the humility to admit error, prudent self-doubt, patience, perseverance, and courage. Without these, even, and perhaps especially, the cleverest of people, like many of the Dominicans in this very room, fall into a moral indolence, a self-contented laziness that blinds them to finding the truth. 
if we honestly examine our own experience, we will likely find that we not infrequently believe that to know what is right and wrong should come to us as a matter of course, as if through some gut-intuitive feeling, rather than that it takes time, effort, and struggle. Moreover, we can be deluded into thinking ourselves to be right, and then thinking, when we think so, that so long as we are good-natured and mean well, we are excused from any further searching. Now, here we touch on the mystery of sin. That clouds us all. And it is probably this mystery, more than anything else, that answers our question about why people don't find the natural law and live by it. It's the sad plight of fallen humanity that if we do not practice the good, we will not find the truth. But in order to practice the good, we need the help of grace. But in order to have the help of grace, we must want the help of grace. Unless we meet these conditions in our lives, the result will inevitably be the confusion of our age and every other age, which confusion St. Paul describes in his epistle to Timothy in the following way. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. a most favored, favored fable of our times is relativism. One hour for questions. Yes, so uh, if anybody would like to uh, slit my throat over any of this or uh, pose probing questions or engage in a conversation, I'm yours. I'm curious, would you, um, with this speech, with this talk, would you give the same talk to a group of secularists, atheists, and if not, how would you change it? Um, I think I could give this talk to a group of secularist atheists. I might have to spend a little more time, if I, if I was given the time, to uh, explain how the principle of intelligibility leads to God, but I could do that, I think. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I, ah. Yeah, so could you please repeat the very last part 
uh, of your talk where you were saying, uh, with the help of grace, we can know the good, which in turn can lead us to discovering the truth. And so connecting back with the previous question, those who don't want to pursue the good, um, how can they then know the truth? In other words, there seems to be something circular in the argument, and I'm sure there isn't. I'm sure I haven't broken out of the circularity. So if you could please clarify that point for me, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Um, yes. A, wor a word or two on that. Uh, the question here is the natural law, a natural law theory of morality, a natural law theory of ethics claims to be universal, right? Okay. The question is, well, if it's so universal, why, why, is, why are the first principles why are so many principles of morality disputed by people, right? Say, for instance, I mean, the protection of innocent life, for instance, from birth to, uh, from birth to natural uh, death. Uh, we Catholics would want to claim that this is grounded, this is a highly reasonable position. This is grounded in the natural law, right? So the question is, um, if we want to claim that, we have to deal with the fact, as you are pointing out, that it is highly disputed by many people, right? So the question is, why is it disputed? Why is something that we claim to be reasonable disputed? Well, St. Thomas, Thomas Aquinas himself observes that the basic principles of the natural law uh, are, should be open to most reasonable people, but then matters get to be much more complicated when we move down uh, from, when we move down the chain of deductions from the first principles of the natural law to, to, to other specific moral principles. And as we move down the chain of deductions, in other words, we could say uh, a highly contingent case would be should a Jesuit in Elizabethan England who was saying a mass uh, for a small Catholic group in a stately home and the police come to arrest him and to put all of those other people in prison along with him, when the uh, police knock on the door and they say, do you have a Jesuit priest in this house? Is the, is the uh, priest and everybody else in the house obliged to tell the literal truth? Now, okay, that is an instance of a moral principle that is, you really have to do a great deal of thinking about from, to, to reason down from the general principle that the truth should always be told to whether the truth must be told in that particular instance. Now, St. Thomas, Thomas's position is that as we move down into more and more difficult and contingent moral principles, uh, things get more and more disputed, okay? So the first thing to observe is that not every principle of the natural law is going to be held even by all natural lawyers. 
But what about what about what about natural law itself as a system? Right. Uh, now, what I would want to claim is that, and it, it may be that my some of my Dominican confreres here or even others may want to dispute this with me, but I would want to claim that. Um, While the natural law is reasonable and that its first principle should be transparent to reason, grace is needed in order for, a cla- in order for clouded human reason to see that clarity clearly. That, that's the position I would want to. That's the position I would want to hold. Yeah, I'd want to hold that. Father Fields, thank you for the fantastic talk, first of all. And um, I'm curious how this might go in office hours. After a problem of God class, a freshman comes in, um, maybe is starting to want the help that you described at the end. But towards the beginning, you used a lot of combative language, talking about relativism as an enemy and something that must be fought off in certain ways. What is the most helpful way you've found to cultivate um, Newman's virtues of self-doubt and prudence and humility and patience and love uh, in that 18-year-old who is trying to find a way to the truth and is starting to want the help um, without immediately distancing him by saying a war is going on necessarily? Um. Well, first of all, I, I don't think it's my job to uh, cultivate virtue in students. I mean, that's the parents' job, right? Uh, so it, the, the next thing is my job, my job is essentially to challenge their faulty thinking. And how do I do that? Uh, by the Socratic method. When I hear nonsense articulated in class, I, you know, I point it out, or at least I raise a counterposition. You want to ask me more? Okay. Okay. I was just curious. uh, If you could speak a little bit about, at least in your opinion, how uh, dependent, um, discerning, if you will, principles of the natural law are on revelation? Yes. Um... Uh, this gets back to the point that I was that I was raising. My, again, my my own opinion on this is that while while the uh, let's take for instance something like uh, Humanae Vitae, right? Let's take something like the the uh, the Church's understanding as articulated by you know Pope Paul VI, but he's only articulating a tradition that goes back to to Judaism that artificial birth control stands in opposition to the natural law. Okay, I would want to to maintain two things on that. First of all, this position is an eminently reasonable position. Uh, But the reasonability of this position, uh, in a sense, what makes what helps a human being to accept 
the reasonability of it as, as certain is the life of faith, hope, and charity. That's what I would want to maintain. You want to ask me something else? Okay. Jim. Thanks, Father. Um, so, on the on the topic of the need for grace to to uh, for the mind to to come to any truth, is it then some sort of very special uh, and uh, extraordinary act of grace that that allows uh, the pagan Aristotle, Plato, sort of before Christ, before everyone to to come to any truth? Oh yes. Now, uh, now, oh yes, definitely. I write about that in my latest book, uh, Nature and Gra- Nature, Grace and Modernity. But it's going to be disputed by by my, my Dominican brethren. Yes, yes. Uh, my my uh, contention there is that nature is is never devoid, at least, of provenient grace. But that doesn't destroy nature. Father, um, you talk about birth control and. You know, I know the position of the Catholic Church. Um, I just read a book called Crossroads, and the author is talking about the environmental situation and diminishing resources. And he goes country by country by country talking about different um, attitudes toward what he calls population control. This is his big thrust of the book in retaining our natural resources. My um, neighbor, Lester Brown, a world-renowned environmentalist, is writing a book on water. I've been reading you know, some of his draft prior to going to the publisher. He in, he's also talking about the um, problem of population out of control in relationship to natural resources. How can we remain human um, if we're not trying, if you believe that our natural resources are diminishing, you know, as far as, you know, water and um, that is needed needed to produce our, you know, food. Um, how does a Catholic respond to this? You know, these two books, you know, are talking about, you know, the importance of population control. Well, and a lot of it is through, you know, birth control, contrary to Catholic teaching. Well, you could you could accept the uh, you could accept the general premise. Uh, I mean, this is far outside of my field, but uh, I'm 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 not I'm not certain that the growing population of the world, because I, from what I've understood, that scientists are, some scientists are not certain that the growing population of the world is the problem. Uh, that the world could sustain many more people. The question is, we need innovations in how to feed them, and how to uh, how to you know uh, how to how to care for them. But that that aside, let's just, for the sake of argument, take the first premise, and that is, assuming that we need population control, I think the issue would be is not the end but the means. It's how how do you bring that about? What's the best means to, to bring that about? And, you know, our Catholic, uh, our Catholic understanding of the natural law is that um, the, uh, something that is wrong should never be done even for a good reason. So if we, if we believe that, say, abortion or if we believe that uh, birth control is something that's, that's uh, wrong in itself, uh, then 
we're not we're not permitted to to do it. We need to find other better means, you know, by which to realize our goals. We have time for one more question. Father, thank you again. It seems that the relativist that you mentioned appealing to um, Darwin and the furtherance of the species via that uh, projection would not be so inclined that all individual humans survive so much as the strongest, most powerful, healthiest, uh, you know, you fall into eugenicism there. If you are combating that viewpoint as your interlocutor, your transition to say that the moral reality should be more important to us than the Higgs boson particle, it seems like it begs the question of why would it be if I'm not concerned with the integrity of the human person but only the success of the most powerful, smartest, most technologically advanced and healthy human, um, how do I avoid begging that question that it really is even close to as important as the Higgs boson particle? Well, uh, <laughs> that's that's... That, that's a very good question. Uh, I, 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 I don't know what I'd say to somebody who, who I, frankly, I'd be tongue-tied. What would you say to somebody who says that a human being is not of intrinsic, of greater intrinsic importance than the, the boson particle? Would, w could you really have an intelligent conversation with such a person? But I'm still, still, those, those people who, who succeed, you know, they're still human beings. There still is an intrinsic, even if you accept, uh, you know, the evolution of the species in some, you know, even sophisticated way, far more sophisticated way than Darwin put forth. Even if you accept that, I mean, you still have a human being, right, that is uh, on the sheer face of it of far greater importance to the universe uh, than the boson particle simply because... Uh, as I mentioned, it's a human being who, through its rational processes, exercises control over the world. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much.